0: This is a Word Fitly Spoken podcast by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly aim to give you the servant of Christ more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm your host, Willie Grills, here with co-host Zelwyn Heidi, and here with our always special guest, the Reverend Adam Koontz. How's it going, guys?
1: Great. How are you guys?
0: Doing well. Great to have you here.
1: It's good to be here again. I want to tie up loose ends between the podcasts that we've had about pastors and the ones that we've done about evangelism. I think that we're going to be able to tie these together pretty well tonight.
0: All right. We're here to talk about St. Paul, the pastor, and his approach to pastoral theology. If there's anybody to learn about pastoral theology from, it's an apostle. And certainly for us Lutheran types, it would be the Apostle Paul
1: it would i mean it, he is the he's by far the most prolific missionary in the new testament he gets it he understands what the mission is that jesus has sent the church on and so we always stand to learn from him as we do from all of scripture but i think paul is particularly helpful because he is concerned not only about spreading the gospel but about establishing the church and strengthening the church so i think it's there's going to be a lot of helpful stuff tonight
0: Well, what I'd like to do is, for those who are uninitiated, let's just go through, Sunday school style, um, a brief biography of St. Paul. Where is St. Paul? Where does he get to start? Where does he come from? When do we first hear about him?
1: Paul is from what is now southeastern Turkey. He's from the province of Cilicia at the time in the city of Tarsus. From there, he's trained in the law in the school of the Pharisees. And he progresses rapidly in his training as a rather nationalistic, rather strict interpreter of the law. He is interrupted, most famously, in the book of Acts by Jesus. He's interrupted in the act of persecuting the church and persecuting the body of Christ. And when he's interrupted, he is called to spread the knowledge of the Messiah, who is Jesus, now, it, rather than to his own Jewish people, but instead to the nations.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. Paul, you know, he's going about this, this uh, mission of persecution. He's knocked off the, or he's blinded by uh, light. And he's, and Jesus, you know, tells him, you know, Saul, Saul, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Um, God has no concern for Paul's aims and goals, but instead uses Paul for his own means.
1: Right. And that's really important to remember whenever we're talking about mission is that mission is not exactly something that Paul carries out. It's something that carries Paul. The mission Mm. is part of the call. The mission is what he has been engaged for by the Lord Jesus. So it's it's really part of his being a Christian is the fact that he is a missionary. And lest we limit that to his being an apostle, you can see that when he talks about how he lives, he does expect that his congregations will imitate him, as we'll discuss later. So what we what we're trying to tie together here is what is tied together in Paul's own life which is to be a Christian to know the gospel is also to be someone who spreads the gospel and we're going to be looking at how Paul does that because from that encounter with Jesus on the road running between Jerusalem and Damascus Paul will then by a somewhat circuitous route eventually spread the gospel throughout much of the eastern Mediterranean area, eventually reaching Rome, where, according to your reconstruction of the facts, he either visits for a while, or most popularly, where he dies sometime in the in the 60s, the early 60s of the first century AD.
0: Certainly. You know, it's interesting. Paul is called to places that are foreign to him, that are often not comfortable to him, that are not amenable to the gospel. And yet, what does Paul do? He carries out his mission with boldness, with confidence, and with authority. And these are things that we're all going to discuss uh, later up in uh, in the broadcast. I especially appreciated,
2: Adam, how you put it that uh, the mission carries Paul, because like I pointed out in a, a previous episode when we were talking about evangelism, even when Paul wasn't intending to go somewhere, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit was carrying him somewhere. Yet he still proclaimed the gospel so that even in those places where, yeah, this isn't exactly where he wanted to be, maybe in a personal level, the mission carries him there and he carries it out faithfully.
1: That's right. So when we talked in previous episodes about the idea that evangelism is not optional for the Christian, what we meant by that especially is that by result of the fact of God's divine grace and sovereignty... The mission is something that God is carrying out regardless of human beings. It is going to happen. But he involves human beings in that mission. He involves his church, both the clergy and the laity in that mission. We don't really have a choice because we are his instruments. We are vessels fit for the master's use. And so when you think about Paul, you're thinking about somebody who definitely doesn't volunteer to be a missionary or volunteer to do the work of an evangelist. He is chosen by God. He is appointed in just the same way that an Old Testament prophet would be. All of these things are by God's grace, and they're so that that grace can be made known to all the nations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a tremendous task when you think about it. And would you say that Paul's task is entirely different from the task given uh, to the church today?
1: It is not different. An apostle is somebody who has witnessed the risen Lord bodily, as Paul did between Jerusalem and Damascus. But as, for instance, the eleven did after Jesus' resurrection. He appeared also to five hundred brothers. You know, Paul catalogues to whom he, to whom the risen Jesus appeared bodily in 1 Corinthians 15. That is different. We don't have to have seen Jesus physically in order to proclaim him. What is not different is the idea that it is Jesus' intention to reach the nations, to reach all nations, tribes, tongues, you know, peoples with his gospel of salvation from sin and death. That's not different at all. That actually never, ever changes. And he is still engaging his church, not only clergy, but also laity within their vocations. He's engaging everybody to help proclaim that gospel, to help spread that gospel, to help further that gospel in the multitude of different ways that people do, as you can see in the book of Acts, right? Lydia, for instance, is not preaching the gospel, but she's offering hospitality and support to Paul and to his co-workers to further that gospel, to provide a home base for the gospel to be proclaimed near her. So everyone is engaged in this and in the way that, you know, Paul is engaged. We're all caught up by the risen Lord into His grace in which we stand, and then brought along by that same Lord onto His mission to reach the nations with His good news.
0: Certainly. And and something that I want the listeners to keep in mind is, so something like Acts 20, and we're going to discuss Paul's approach to pastoral ministry, and then a contemporary approach to pastoral ministry, and how that looks a little bit different to us, or how it is received differently today. But we consider something like Acts 20, Paul's farewell to the Christians in Ephesus, and he tells them that he's going to be leaving, and when they hear, they all weep, they fall on his neck, they kiss him, and they sorrow most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompany him to his ship that he's leaving on, and say goodbye to him. The reception that Paul receives in Ephesus, now, Paul often does not receive such a fond farewell, and certainly not a fond welcome, but... This farewell he receives in Exodus. It's something for us to keep in, or excuse me, in when he's leaving Ephesus. This is something for us to keep in mind when we talk about an approach to pastoral ministry. Would Paul as a pastor be received well today? And really the shadow over all that question is, would Jesus Christ even be received warmly today by many people? And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Paul in his context, you know, to what degree is his pastoral approach culturally conditioned? To what degree is it not culturally conditioned? And we need to really evaluate the way in which we receive the message of Jesus Christ, the manner in which we receive his messengers, his pastors, the men whom he has raised up. These are valid questions for the church today and how we approach the mission that God has called the church to.
1: Yeah. And cultural conditioning is is one good way to put the Bible at arm's length. There are legitimate times when it's true that something is culturally conditioned. Culturally conditioned, for instance, would be what Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads or kick against the pricks in the King James language.
0: The only one acceptable yes, go on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that, that is culturally conditioned. You have to understand how they're, you know, doing farming at the time to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Should
0: should understand the idiom. Yeah.
1: Right. You need to understand the idiom. But what's not culturally conditioned is the idea that, for instance, God calls men to himself. They are not seeking him out, but he seeks them out. And in this way, you know, Paul actually and Luke, recounting Paul, explicitly refute the idea that Paul's calling is culturally conditioned by having Paul say later on in Acts, I would that all men were as I am today except without these chains. So the idea that somehow Paul's life is not exemplary for the church or that the scriptures are not all written for our learning that really attacks the doctrine that scripture is God-breathed, that it is God's infallible inerrant word. And so a lot of times what you can see is that when someone says something is culturally conditioned or that was just true for Paul's time, people are usually especially nervous about Paul because Paul is so clear about what he wants to happen. When they say that, what what you're always going to find is a basic unease with scripture's authority on some level from that same person it may be explicit it may be implicit in their wanting to distance scripture from themselves but it's what people do when they when scripture which is clear is sort of terrifyingly clear they put it at a distance by saying well that was then this is now
0: so yeah so paul one of his first and foremost missionary efforts was to find and train men to be ministers after him so to take up the task the teaching office after he has left
1: yeah and i and i think that this is not a trivial thing to look at how he does things not only what paul says about justification or mystical union with christ or sanctification or Holy Communion, those are all important to understand Paul's doctrine. But if all scripture is written for our learning, also Paul's practice is important in the same way that we look at Jesus' practice, right? How should I preach? Well, let me see how Jesus preached. How should I conduct myself with regard to civil authorities? Let me see how Jesus answers Pilate, or how Jesus deals with the question of paying a tax to Caesar. The practice of those chosen by God in scripture is at least as important, if not sometimes more important in any given situation than just the abstraction of doctrine. Their doctrine is put into practice as they go on the mission that God has sent them on, right? That's the real test of whether or not they both understand, believe, and can proclaim that doctrine.
0: So yeah, so for Paul then, it's one of his ultimate goals is to Train up ministers after him. And so, what does the work of Paul then look like? And what is the ultimate, ultimate goal within the congregation for Paul?
1: Yeah, he is trying to bring people to the final and full knowledge of Jesus Christ, he wants to present them all before Christ as a spotless bride adorned for the nuptial feast of the Lamb. So in trying to present men, or as he says in Romans, to present the nations as a priestly offering, he is trying to bring them proclaiming the gospel and admonishing them to good works, to bring them and to have them grow up here into the image and the fullness of Christ so that at the last day they are presented without shame, spotless and adorned, ready to receive Christ forever. That's the goal. And in order to do that, he needs people to proclaim, to teach, and to model that message even after he's gone which is why he's always seeking to train men. Uh, It's why he writes the pastoral epistles, especially, so that that work goes on when Paul is gone.
0: Do you feel that this work of St. Paul or this emphasis of St. Paul has been overgeneralized, let's say, since the uh, 19th century onward, that it's been sort of relegated to just a general work of the church rather than training and equipping certain men for a certain task?
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it because I think that what happens in the modern church is that things often get turned into programs that in scripture are about personal qualities and personal fitness. So if we invent a program for something or we have a certain method of producing trained ministers, it's like that that program or that structure can somehow replace the idea that there is a man who needs to be personally fit for something. So let me say it this way. If sometimes the modern church appears to be trying to train people to be Sort of like daycare superintendents, like they have the general (laughs) qualities of a parent, but they're not really parents. Paul is trying to train fathers. So it's a lot more specific, it's a lot more personal. It impacts the, the person in charge in a much more personal way. Not that there's something like bad about taking care of kids who aren't your kids. But it's definitely a different task when you're taking care of your own. It's a full-time task, and it changes you and stresses you and grows you in ways that being a daycare superintendent just are not going to when it's your own kids. So I think that if we take one thing away from this tonight, um, it's that you really cannot replace personal discipleship both for the minister or really for any Christian within his vocation. You can't replace the personal shaping that Paul is seeking to do, both with Timothy and with, in some cases, entire congregations.
0: There is a localism to the pastoral epistles that is often lacked today. It's easy, I mean, much the same with our podcast. We can reach almost the entire world with a podcast, and there are many gurus for church um, principles, church growth, whatever you know, on any side of the debate, to where uh, men have often looked beyond the sphere that God has given them and looked for a larger audience. Do you feel that a local or a global presence is A, more biblical, or at least B, more apt for the called minister?
1: I I don't think that global is necessarily bad. Paul is very big on connection between his churches. So I think that in the negative sense of the word, parochialism is often the death of the church because people can no longer see outside of themselves. And and to be utterly and only parochial is usually when ministers dry up, when they when they have few or no fresh ideas, when things kind of stagnate and they're very happy with the stagnation. But I'll say it this way, there is no global church without local churches. There is no church really without local churches. We cannot exist solely as parachurches or seminaries or denominations, or district headquarters. Those things are all good and helpful and right and right in their own way, but they all serve the local church because there really is no church per se biblically speaking, without local church, without a pastor, a people, a gathering, the word and the sacraments proclaimed in that place for those people by that man. That's God's plan for how people come into communion with him. And how they prepare to be presented before Christ on the last day. So global is fine. Global is good. Global can be really helpful. I've learned so much from people that I've never, ever met and never will in some cases because they've been dead for a long time from the global (laughs) church. But the local church is where I learn how to see the image of Christ in somebody else. It's where I learn how to love my neighbor as myself. It's where I learn concretely to love God with all my heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where my devotion is tested. And that's also where I receive the gifts that God gives to me so richly. All of that happens in the local church. So focusing on the local church is really the most utterly natural thing that we could be doing because it's what God himself is doing.
0: Certainly, certainly. And that's an excellent setup for diving into the text here, which we're going to do right after the break. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. if you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie Grills, Elwin Heidi, Adam Coons here talking about Paul as pastor. We talked about the background of Paul, sort of the context of Paul. And now we're going to get into Paul's actual writings. And the first thing that we need to discuss is the pastor as a steward of the mysteries of God. And that's going to put us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 or 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for our listeners across the pond,
1: Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 is talking about his own account of his ministry, how he thinks about what he's doing when he thinks about what we might call, in kind of modern human resources terms, performance review. Who is checking up on him? To whom does he have to give an account? And as he talks about this, I think that sometimes Paul can sound arrogant to people because he has a forthrightness, a boldness, a confidence that is not really that popular, certainly not in our culture, to express yourself so plainly. But in 1 Corinthians 4, he speaks of himself in terms. one term which is really rather very familiar, because of even things like servant leadership that have leaked into even corporate culture, he says that you are to think of us in this way as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And that image is an image of somebody who is managing something. If you wanted to give a super literal translation of the Greek, he would be like an economist of the mysteries of God. He's dealing out the things that God has revealed to mankind. Because of that, he thinks of himself not as necessarily, let's say it this way, his bosses are not his hearers. Uh Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, right? (laughs) His bosses are not his hearers. In fact, he only has one boss. And that is... Hold on, hold
0: on. Who is that one boss?
1: Well, the the one boss is, is obviously the person who gives the most to the congregation.
0: Uh Uh-oh, here we go. (laughs) Teeing it up. Get ready. We're going to grand slam it there, happy Gilmore.
1: (laughs) No, uh, he says the only thing required of a steward is that he be found faithful. And faithful in what? Faithful in the things that the master has given him. And Paul only has one master, and that is God. So if he thinks of himself as accountable to everyone else in the whole world, then God would not be his master. He would have many, many masters. And it's fascinating when he says, goes on to say, you know, it it really doesn't matter to me if you judge me, he says to the Corinthians. It doesn't matter if any human court judges me. And he says at the end of verse three, I don't even judge myself. So it's like when Paul is is preaching the gospel, when he's doing all the various things, especially the kind of hard advice that he's going to give to the Corinthians over the next, you know, I don't know if you want to, when you want to think of the advice as ending in first Corinthians, but, you know, let's, let's give it at least nine or 10 chapters. As he gives that advice, he is not thinking of himself as, you know, timorously offering suggestions to people who are ultimately in charge of him.
0: Right. And it's important to remember that with the pastoral epistles, these are not just texts meant, you know, to sound good in the church service. You know, somebody's standing up at the lectern and it really sounds pretty when they read it. These are not noisy gongs or clanging cymbals. These are actual practical admonitions from Paul, the apostle and pastor.
1: Yeah, I think if you think of Paul as kind of a source for theological reflection, which he certainly is, that's one way to think of him. In his own context, though, we talked about cultural conditioning, but let's talk about his context. Let's be clear about that. Paul's context is that he is engaged in the work of preaching the gospel. So what we have in his letters are documents from that mission, documents from that work. So they are eminently practical in the same way that if you took over a job from somebody and you had a record of how he did that job, or he explained to you personally how he did that job that you're going to be doing too, you'd be like, this is really useful. So when you look at not just what Paul says, but how he says it, he's not saying this arrogantly there's a very profound theological point here. The minister of Christ is Christ's servant. He's not a servant of everyone. He's not even a servant of himself or his own ego, right? Let's be clear. Paul is not enslaved to his own ego. The work that he's doing is not to aggrandize himself or so that at the end of the day, he can think back about what he's done that day and, and, th- and be really pleased with himself. He says, I don't even judge myself. Now that doesn't mean that he's arrogant in the sense that he just does whatever he wants to do like he just he goes you know let's let's pretend Paul is you know a modern pastor, so he goes to his study and then he's you know he's on social media or whatever for a while and then he reads something in a desultory fashion before going back to his phone right he's not just like in his office all day doing whatever he wants to do and then going home and still collecting a paycheck. It's not it's not like he's lazy but what he's saying is I don't even judge myself he means I'm not in the capacity to judge myself nor is any other human being because in my work of preaching the gospel I am accountable to Christ he's he's not living as what you know the King James so wonderfully calls men pleasers right or eye pleasers he's not there to be seen by anyone including himself as great he's there to be faithful in the things that christ has given him to do
0: and indeed paul is faithful in the face of persecution even persecution at times from those who should have been loyal to him it's a it's a very interesting story to look at paul does not lead a glamorous life he leads what would have been a life you know, presumably of, of accolade to go be a tent maker and, and to preach to people who would give him often nothing but grief. And yet there is, of course, joy in the midst of grief. But Paul's work was not easy. And he finds himself at odds sometimes with the congregation in a particular city, certainly with the Jews, and then also even, you know, at certain times with the church at Jerusalem a little bit, and certainly with uh, with Peter, you know, depending upon the time.
1: If you think about all of these different situations, all of these different people, all of these different problems that he's dealt with, if he doesn't have this confidence that it is the Lord who judges, then he's going to be afraid because you're never totally equipped for every new situation you encounter.
2: Adam, let me pitch you a question, though. I can see the the lazy pastor, as you so aptly describe him, imagining himself as being, shall we say, faithful. How would Paul actually define faithfulness to being the Lord's steward?
1: No, that that is a great question. I think that faithfulness includes two things here, and this goes back to our discussion that we did. If you're just new to the podcast, go back and listen to the two discussions of George Henry Gerberdings, the Lutheran pastor, because there's two parts to this. One is faithfulness in teaching, faithfulness in saying what the scriptures say, nothing more. And also, nothing less. Faithfulness in proclaiming the truth that you've been given to proclaim. Also, faithfulness in doing the things that you've been given to do. Doing the work of an evangelist, preaching the word, being with the people, visiting the sick, admonishing the erring calling the repentant to a new life, a new way of doing things, exhorting the faithful, encouraging those who need encouragement, weeping with those who weep, doing what you should do. Faithfulness includes both our faithfulness in believing and proclaiming, but also our faithfulness in doing and leaving an example to those under our care.
2: No, that's that's a great way of putting it. Because I think very often we we tend to just equate faithfulness, I suppose, with just having all of our ducks in a row in terms of the the teaching. But to to connect it uh, with doing as well, I think, really drives home the point of what Paul is trying to get at, that, you know, that I don't even judge myself, but I've been sent by Christ to do this mission, that this mission carries me, uh, even in those places where I myself might not be comfortable, but this is still what I have been called to do.
0: Right. Does a, does a pure doctrine, uh, is, a, is a pure doctrine considered sufficient if it doesn't lead to the pastor living it out, spreading that gospel and carrying out the task that that pure doctrine tells him to do or compels him to carry out, right? I mean, it's not just a series of definitions and articles, but it's also a body of doctrine that compels the pastor to do certain things. I mean, tied up with a, a right understanding of the theology of the call for whatever, or whatever you want to call it, is an implicit command to the pastor to do something.
1: At the risk of sounding somewhat mystical, I think that if a pastor thinks about this, or if you, you know you're not a pastor and you're listening, if you think about it this way. Part of the pastor's job is ensuring that, for instance, there's nothing in the divine service on Sunday which is ungodly, which is untrue. His sermon should be only the pure teaching of God's word, and there should not be practices in the service which are unfaithful to the scriptures, right? But as I do those things, and I am, I can say with Paul, as I do those things, I am not aware of anything against myself, right? But I am not thereby acquitted. There is both the potential that my example or the way I'm saying something may be be wrong and I may need correction and repentance, but there's also the reality that the life with Christ is hidden. And so that, that hidden life is being nurtured in the congregation by things that I'm not even really aware of, like the way that I talk about how we're excited about vacation Bible school. That's going to affect people's desire to be involved and in people's love for Christ's church and and desire to spread the gospel in ways that I don't fully understand or that I'm not even sometimes aware of. So I think that faithfulness includes both those things which can be easily seen. Are you preaching that Jesus is really God, or, or are you saying that he's just a man or something, right? That's like a really basic example. But there's also faithfulness in the energy, the devotion, the excellence that you pursue in your ministry in all aspects. And that affects people on a level which is much deeper than cognition, which and, and, and whose fruits are, I think, really only known farther down the road, maybe not even in my own lifetime. So all of that, all of that involves faithfulness. And 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 you can see that when Paul talks about his own life, it's not just, he doesn't just recount, well, I preach the truth here, and then I preach the truth there. He says, and then this happened to me, and then this horrible thing happened, but God saw me through it.
0: Right, yeah. Paul is witness to this when, despite the scourgings from the Jews and the persecutions, he continues to preach the gospel and to minister to the people God has given him. And really the the persecution that Paul faces is worse than the persecution that many of our listeners are going to hear. Yeah. There will be persecution from individual congregations or, or whatever. But Paul here literally beaten, literally left for dead sometimes, whether right or wrong, you know, according to Roman law. And yet he continues to persevere despite that. And his scars bear testimony to the resurrection of jesus christ or to the validity of the message of jesus christ and that in and of itself speaks volumes to his hearers at the same time his fidelity to the people he stays with the people he works among the people he himself says he doesn't want to be a burden to the people and then this really has an effect upon his audience
1: no and you're you're totally right because When Paul talks about characteristics for pastors who will come after him, whom Timothy will train in 1 Timothy 3, when he does that, people are sometimes surprised by how personal those characteristics are. Paul does talk about, as we discussed in our last episode about evangelism, he does talk about pure doctrine. You're not allowed to just make it up. You need to to say what is sound, what is wholesome what is good, what is true. But the list of things that he's looking for and that he's telling Timothy to look for are largely about personal characteristics because he needs people who can do the things he's doing, who can suffer, who can endure, who can persevere. So it's it's kind of like, if I'm looking to like get a really like great baseball team together, I'm not just looking for the guy who has all the statistics in his head.
0: Right, right. But first, but first, before we move on straight into those qualifications, let let's take just a second here and focus upon you know apt to teach, which we'll get into a little bit more. But but at least the idea of doctrine that that person needs to be skilled in that doctrine and able to communicate that doctrine in the way in which it has been handed down to him, a continual reinvention. And we live in a time where every five or ten years, there's new buzzwords or new buzz terms or new vocabulary that someone has to listen to in order to be considered an effectual pastor, according to the world. We ought to be careful because part of the pastoral office is receiving and then you yourself passing on what has been handed down to you. And like you say, not inventing something. But that also entails saying things in the way or using the words that were given to you. And ultimately, we would hope the words given to you through the scripture. You could even say that what Paul is giving
2: here is not so much educational requirements, which I think sometimes we we might tend to lean towards, but actually more moral requirements for one who's going to be in the office. That doesn't mean that education is unimportant. But what it means is that, like you said, there has to be a certain personal qualification uh, to the the office of the ministry that, well, uh, as we said in the Gerberding episode, sometimes can't necessarily be taught in school.
0: Would you say it's something that can be built or something that one must just naturally possess?
2: I think that the soul can be
1: trained in these things. It is possible that a man simply is not inclined to them, but I, I, I've i been very affected, and, and maybe we'll talk about this in a future podcast at, at greater length, but Wilhelm Lea's pastoral theology, translated as the pastor in English is an obviously extremely talented man, massively talented, massively learned, especially about the history of pastoral theology in the Lutheran church. But he says very pointedly, very early on in the pastor, about effectiveness as a pastor, men who are very, very faithful in doing what they're supposed to do. He says very pointedly that a less talented man may do much better than a man who is much more learned or much more eloquent because devotion to the task and humility are far more important than talent and scholarship. And this is not at all, in Leah's case or in our case, to decry talent and scholarship. Excellence and precision in speech and eloquence are all really important, and they can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior very wonderfully. But humility and understanding of who your master is, to whom you are accountable, that you are called to be faithful, that you will one day give an account for the souls under your charge, all of these things are important and more basic than anything else. So that when we're talking about personal characteristics, we are talking about how a man is shaped to do what he does in just the same way that we're really, we're very concerned that like a catcher in baseball can be a really smart guy and he can know exactly what pitch to call in any one case. But if he has a weak arm or he can't squat for nine innings, it really doesn't matter how much he knows.
0: Right. And Johnny bench was a terrible person. We understand, but (laughs) it's, um, it, it is very interesting, you know, can a man be an effectual preacher and, say, have a lisp or a speech impediment? Yeah, we actually have perhaps examples from Scripture from that. And it is very true. God oftentimes works in the spine of these things and works through these great men who would, in the eyes of the world, be handicapped in some way. Then at the same time, you have the learned men of the world, the men whom the world would esteem or whom the men in power would esteem, and yet what did they profit as far as the church is concerned? Nothing. Simply because, again, noisy gong, clanging cymbal. There's a point to where studiousness only serves itself for the person who is reading, but our study ought to be focused upon our parish work.
2: Of course, we should also say, though, that just so that listeners don't misunderstand us, if the two go together, you know, how much more glorious that is. Right, exactly. uh, when, right, right, sure. When you have someone who has all of these, the the strong undergirding, and the only way I can think of maybe explaining this would be like a house, like building a house. If you have a properly built frame, and then you have the most beautiful exterior on the house, you know, how glorious a building that is. But you don't want to forfeit the frame. And trying to get the the greater exterior, and that's kind of what we're what we're getting at
0: here. Certainly. So let's um, with the last few minutes of this segment, then dig into First Timothy and see what is expected then of a pastor. Yeah,
1: as he's talking about this, he uses the term episkopos, which turns into bishop in English eventually, but to take it in its most literal sense of overseer, it is somebody who is looking over the whole scope of a task so that the pastor is somebody who is in charge of all the work going on in a specific place as an overseer might be in a field and the pastor is also somebody who's looking forward to, you know, how is the harvest work going? What are we going to need to do tomorrow? Where will we work next week, next month? The pastor kind of looks forward, looks out, kind of has everything in view at once. It's important to say all that because the qualifications are specifically for somebody who's going to have more responsibility than anyone else. So he is somebody who is the man of one woman, or as strangely enough, the NRSV, the liberal Protestant translation, (laughs) says really well, married only once. And why is that? It's because, and we'll get into this more as we talk about imitation, the pastor is a picture with the congregation of the relationship between Christ, whom he represents, and the church. The pastor models for the congregation not only the moral behavior expected of all Christians, but he's also modeling the relationship between Jesus and his church. So he is faithful to only one woman, just as Jesus is faithful only to the church. The pastor is not practicing, in any sense, polygamy, which would be an option maybe in the form of concubinage or outright having more than one wife at one time. So whether we're talking about kind of serial monogamy or open simultaneous polygamy, these are options in various parts of the ancient Mediterranean, as they are today, right? Concubinage, girlfriends.
0: Yeah, Middle East, Latin America. I mean, you certainly still have the idea of mistresses and concubines. You have polygamy in Africa, and then we just have rampant uh, wantonness in relationships in the United States, for example, or in the uh, liberal West.
1: Right. And so the the idea that the pastor would be like divorced and remarried, but it's like not his fault or something, that doesn't make any sense if you're the overseer, right? You're responsible for the thing. So if you fail in your task, everyone else will too. The connection here is between the pastor as exemplar and the congregation. And let me be super clear as we talk about some of the other characteristics real quick, that this is not meant by Paul as kind of a joke or ironically, or like, hey, we know that nobody can really do this, but let me just list off what it would be really like if, if a pastor were really great and could do this. No, this is a job description. And so when he says, you know, the pastor should be temperate. He should be sensible. He should be respectable. He should be good at entertaining people, hospitable, right? He's not violent, but gentle. He's not saying, well, it's okay if you run around like getting in bar fights, that's okay. No, (laughs) you can't, okay? Because you're, you're trying to get, to be formed into the image of christ which they will bear for eternity so if you are not able to demonstrate that yourself then you shouldn't be training them to do so
0: right before we get into that too much we are going to take a break really quick then we're going to break this down and look at it because it is something very important and paul is explicit about these things the pastoral ministry not an entitlement No job in the church or no vocation in the church is an entitlement. No vocation in the world is an entitlement. So we want to take a look at this and be very careful and very sober, sober sober-minded, as Paul admonishes. So great stuff here, great stuff coming up. You are listening to Word Fitly. We'll be right back. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to a Word Fitly Spoken podcast. Willie Grill, Zelman Heidi, Adam Kuntz, talking about Paul as pastor. Specifically right now, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, talking about the qualifications for overseers, bishops, or pastors, depending upon how you want to interpret that verse. We spend a good deal of time and a fruitful deal of time talking about pastors being above reproach and the husband of one wife. So we're going to dig right into the rest of these verses here, guys. Who wants to take it?
1: Yeah, I'll start with verse 3, which is really an application of what Paul says at the end of verse 2. He's talked about personal characteristics like being temperate, not going overboard, having what Gerberding would describe as common sense, being respectable, being able to teach people, being able to be kind to strangers, hospitable. And then he applies that pretty specifically by saying he can't be a drunkard. So this is to say that there are certain habits or ways of life which are forbidden to the man of God because they evidence the idea that he does not understand what the gospel has been for, right? Think about when Paul talks in... I believe it's Titus about the gospel training us to renounce ungodliness. That that the gospel means that we are no longer enslaved to our passions. We are no longer enslaved to the old man.
0: Right, right. Well, here I think too, you see, Paul in accord with the other apostles, right? First Peter chapter two, where Peter is admonishing the hearers to observe certain types of behaviors to not be quarrelsome, you know, to love neighbor, to live your life in a certain way. So this is nothing unique to Paul, and that's important. This is a a, a universal apostolic witness to these things.
1: Yeah, he's saying in a very pithy form what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that there are certain ways of behaving and living which characterize Christians, which are not meant, as I said in the last segment, as kind of a joke, or just to show you how much you lack. They are realistic expectations. So, He says that the pastor cannot be a drunkard, he can't be violent, he's not looking to start a fight, and he's not a lover of money. Now, this is maybe the most often misquoted Bible verse. Maybe it competes up there with apocryphal things like God helps them that help themselves. But people often believe that money is the root of evil. Money is a tool. It's a seductive tool, but it's just a tool. And we are stewards of it as of everything else. But the love of money is very corrosive because the love of money leads you to do very foolish things, like the rich fool who thinks that his life is characterized by how much storage space he either has or needs to get and so when Paul says that the pastor should not be a lover of money, that means that the pastor is using his money for God's purposes to support the work of the gospel, to support his family. The pastor is not enslaved by the love of money. You can be enslaved by the love of money even if you have almost no money.
0: Yeah, and it's a it's a pernicious sin and it you know, it's a temptation for many many men. And it's a it's a universal temptation, not just for pastors, but for any Christian.
2: We should also point out there, since we're, you related it to other passages in the Bible, James, of course, saying that not many of you should be teachers because they will be held to a stricter judgment. And that just goes to emphasize what you're saying, Adam. He's not joking. He's not just setting up this unattainable ideal, but he's actually saying like, this is what Pastors should be
0: right. It's no petty subject. It's not just a series of boxes you check on a seminary application or a colloquy application or whatever they do wherever you know you're at and whatever denomination you're in. These are sincere and serious qualifications that a man ought to contemplate before taking on this task. I
1: think, especially the idea that you should not be a lover of money and that you are facing a stricter judgment because you are responsible not only for your own soul and not only for your family's souls, and we'll talk about that in a second, but you're responsible for the souls under your care. Lots of practices in our church body like closed communion, like church discipline, they all concern and promote this sense of the pastor having accountability for specific souls whom he instructs and guides if those souls see the pastor living in a way which shows that he is dominated by money that money enslaves him and controls him that conspicuous consumption is what he likes to do or that the fact that he wants more money for who knows what purposes are you know really the object of his affections then they will either believe that the love of money is fine And the Bible calls that love of money the root of all evil, or they will rightly judge the pastor to be lacking in faithfulness because his life is defined by the love of money and consumption in the way that any ungodly person in modern America could be. So many people's lives are defined by their love of money. And if the pastor is doing that, then he's modeling a life which is not defined by Christ, for the people who are watching him,
0: and that doesn't negate, you know, not muzzling the ox while he's treading his while he's treading the grain. That do, that's not to say that the labor isn't worth his wages. Um, but yeah, absolutely, the principles you have there. So judged for what he is teaching and his conduct among the people that God has given him, and then specifically here in First Timothy three, looking at verse four, and how the pastor or the would be pastor manages his own household.
1: So let me just say that usually when this verse is brought up, it is brought up in order to find a way out of it. So mm. Paul says clearly that he must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. And what's usually brought up is, oh, well, but his adult children he's not responsible for. And that's true if they're not living in his household. They form their own families the man shall leave his mother and father in cle- his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's true. New families, new households form, and you're not responsible in, the, in, in that way, for them in every way. But it does give an impressive witness to something very sad, if, for instance, a man raises four children and none of them goes to church, none of them is a Christian anymore. That says something let alone if they're in his own household and they do not respect him. But let's say this too, that that modern loophole that people look for is not even what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about children who openly disrespect their father, who treat him like he's their servant, or who treat him, who talk to him as if he is the child and they are the father.
0: Well, not not just children, not just children, but spouses as well, wives as well.
1: Yeah, and isn't it remarkable that that Paul is not really explicitly saying that because he simply right
0: assumes, he, he assumes he assumes that <laughs> how could this even happen? It's not even in right? his it's not even in his mind.
1: Right. In the same way, he's not saying like and the wife. In case a woman is a pastor, there's lots of things that <laughs> Paul is not saying because he doesn't even consider that a Christian would ever think that a woman could be somehow representing Christ Jesus to the church. Which is his bride, right? Right. Nor does he consider that a woman who is married to a man who is overseeing the church would disrespect the overseer so publicly that the overseer would have to keep her in submission. It's not even considered. But Paul says, well, you know, the kids, kids get unruly so that he has to be careful to manage his own household well right so it it's remarkable both what our day looks to get out of in the explicit words of scripture and also what the what scripture does not even does not even have to explicitly say let's
0: belab- let's belabor this point a bit because it's our podcast and we can do it the idea of a father as a buffoon is is a cliche it comes up all the time right and yet it's become very true the, the the pastor is often even presented as somebody who's henpecked or he uses his wife elevates her up as somehow as as an authority within the church And it is absolutely and utterly contemptible and ridiculous that we have allowed this to happen. We talk, we lament that pastors aren't respected in society. Well, why are pastors not respected in society? Because men are not respected, because fathers are not respected, because husbands are not respected. Oftentimes, through no fault of their own, to be sure. Yet oftentimes, because we've we've so elevated certain segments of society that every man becomes Fred Flintstone or let's say post-season 8, Homer Simpson. It's absolutely and utterly ridiculous and contemptible and flies in the face of what Paul assumes.
1: It does, and I think it's important to say that Paul's question at the end of verse 5 is rhetorical. If he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how can he manage the household of God? The reason it's rhetorical is simply because... Paul sees the connection between a man's own fitness for the basic tasks of his life and his fitness for the task of being an overseer. If he fails those basic tasks within circles that God has put him in, which are not by choice, you can't simply stop being the husband of your wife. You can't stop being the father of your children. Right. So if you can't do those things which are not your choice, you really should not be doing those things which are your choice. You can desire to be an overseer, and to desire that is to desire a noble task. But the noble task should only be undertaken by the one who already has the more basic tasks under his belt, so to speak.
0: No, that's absolutely a great point you make up. If if you're not willing to weather the storm with your own family, will you be able to stand up when it comes to the congregation? Because there is the great temptation for the pastor. Oftentimes, men can be very faithful to their family, but in the face of persecution or antagonism within the congregation, it's very easy to either acquiesce to unreasonable demands or... What will we say to just simply withdraw into your study or into your den and watch uh, sports ball all day or to read theology all day as kind of a refuge?
1: Yeah, because if you are unsure about how to go about this thing, then you will have no joy in doing it. And then you will seek the safest possible way to continue holding on somehow, to continue existing instead of pushing forward On the mission on which you've been sent. Right. If people listen to the previous episodes on evangelism and it sounded unfamiliar or difficult, it's simply because we are unfamiliar with the sort of the fullness, the robustness, the boldness, the confidence in life. On Christ's mission that Paul has because he is operating and he is teaching men to operate within the church as fully orbed, fully functioning men. They are alive and they are ferocious in going out on Christ's mission. They are men fully. 100%. They're not being held back. They are not timid, either in their own families, in the church, because they have this confidence which Christ has given them to carry out everything that they've been charged with doing and to do it fully, not in arrogance, but in great humility but as servants of Christ and only of Christ. And for that reason, they have great confidence and they know how to manage their own households and God's church because they know to whom they are accountable and they know how to be faithful.
0: So with that being said, pastor as overseer, okay, bishop, pastor, right? Shepherd, pastor as father of the family of God, which brings us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's dig into that.
1: We come back to where we started and we we go to just a little bit farther on in that chapter. Paul says in verse 14, I am not writing this to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, to exhort you as my beloved children. He says, you might have You might have myriads or, let's say, 10,000 pedagogues, teachers, guardians, the person who's going to lead you to school in the ancient world. Uh, You might have 10,000 of those in Christ. You have a bunch of them. You have lots of people who can teach you something about Jesus. No questions asked. He says, but you do not have many fathers so with the with the congregation in Corinth, there is a special relationship Paul has where he is their father, and he says, "I have become your Father in Christ Jesus through the Gospel." so this is a relationship which has occurred because the Gospel has been preached by Paul to them. They really only have one father. And that's why he speaks to them in the way that he does. So there's something, there's a special relationship between the person who's proclaiming the gospel and the person who is hearing and believing that gospel, which is different.
0: Yeah. And the image of a father is very important. You know, you go back to Proverbs, right? Train up a child in the way that he should go. And then Paul is going to tell them, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to uh, verse 16, I urge you as your father to be imitators of me. Now, there's something that would not fly in a in a modern pulpit.
2: Let me ask this, though. Does being in the office of preaching uh, necessarily mean that one automatically becomes a spiritual father? Does that make
0: sense? I think it does. I actually think it does. I think that that, that, that should be the the mode in which one should should understand it and way one one should view the vocation now does he fulfill that is that the question yeah so if a man is placed into
2: the office like placed into the office of overseer and and in our in our own modern understanding does he automatically become a spiritual father in the way that that Paul is talking about i'll I'll throw the question back to adam
1: the reason i'm hesitating is because i want to say no practically Theologically, I want to say yes. I want to, agree with, I want to agree with Willie that theologically what is happening is that the overseer is by necessity a father. He doesn't have a choice. He is an example. He doesn't have a choice about mm-hmm. that. The reason Paul can say positively, imitate me, become imitators, I became your father, become imitators of me, is because Paul is modeling both in his doctrine and in his life like we talked about. He's modeling a Christian life, which is the bearing, the renewal in man of the image of God known through Jesus Christ. That's all happening. That's all theologically true. And it's what Paul wants to be practically true in the life of the Corinthians. I want to say no, practically, because there are many men who discharge their office carelessly, or they think that their office is confined to, to the announcement of true statements apart from life, and, and and that is that's neither what the Bible says, nor is it even what our what our ordination vows say. We talk about adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, with a holy life.
0: But let's look at it this way, Adam and Zelman. If a man fathers a child, is he a father? Yes. Does he have those? Yeah, respons- genetically, yeah, genetically right. right. But even beyond that, does he have, according to the law of God? these responsibilities of a father
1: yes right
0: now is he necessarily cut out for the job (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) no And, and practically he doesn't fulfill it and we bristle at this too we wouldn't get up and tell our congregations to imitate us for the simple reason that we know ourselves right and and there is that part of us that knows the sinfulness of man. And that's, that's why we, that's why we bristle against that sort of thing. But, but to go back to Adam's point there, there are many who do have the office, right? The office, which would say that there's, that they're spiritual overseers and they don't carry out that function with much sobriety. I don't mean drunkenness. I just mean with a great understanding of, of what this task entails. So, so to go back to, to our ordination vows and pick up to, to where I interrupted you there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say this, that, you don't really have an option about imitation, right? It is like being a father. And, and in that way, you're, you're very much correct. You don't have an option. Your kid is going to look like you. He's going to bear some of your worst traits, whether or not you're trying. So what you should be trying to do, whether you're literally a genetic father of somebody or whether you are somebody's spiritual father or both, is to be intentional about passing on What imitates Christ, right? Paul's going to say later on in 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So you want to be intentional about passing on not just your worst aspects, about which you really don't have a choice, but you're also going to be intentional about passing on the image of Christ Jesus, and, yeah. that, and that's what Paul is doing. he's being intentional about it, and he's saying there is somebody who bears this image who is my beloved child, Timothy, and I'm sending him to you because you can see in him my ways in Christ
0: right and but what and what does that look like then?
1: That looks like a life of sacrifice and of love. Now that's right. going to be different depending on a person's vocation, sex age, you're going to have different callings at different parts of life, but it's always going to look like giving yourself up for the sake of the mission of Christ and for the sake of love toward the neighbor.
0: So what does it look like then? What does a sacrificial life of a pastor look like?
1: A sacrificial life of a pastor is really no different than a father's. To kind of wrap it up here, it looks like a father who is willing to do anything for his children. Now, sometimes a father has to sleep. Sometimes a father has to eat. You can't literally give up every single second of life for your children. But it does mean that what is constantly on your mind is your children and the future that they will have. It means that you think about the future differently because you have children. It means that what you're doing is for their good even when it's hard, even when you're telling them to do things that they don't like. Even when they are pushing back against you, you have to stand firm, not because you like making them upset, but because you know what is good for them. And it means most of all that what you are doing is entirely for their benefit in the same way that what Christ does for us is even when we don't understand it and when he leads us in thorny ways and through difficult times, it's all for our good the pastor in imitating christ is doing everything for the good of his of his children in the way that any father would do so he is giving himself up sacrificially as christ gave himself up sacrificially just as peter says christ dying leaving us an example and that's an example not just for all christians in general but also for pastors specifically that they would imitate the overseer of their souls in giving themselves up for the flock
0: All right guys we're about to wrap it up here any any final words Zewen I just want to
2: maybe point out at the very end of 1 Corinthians 4 I think this kind of wraps up what you were saying Adam when he says you know what do you wish shall I come to you with a rod you know shall I come to you as a, someone who has to do what is hard or shall I or with love in a spirit of gentleness and so to be a spiritual father is to be like, well, like you said, a father to, to his children. Hard if you have to be, but also doing it all in, the, in a spirit of love, in a spirit of gentleness.
0: Very good. Adam, any final words? I
1: think thinking about the pastor as a father also brings great warmth, both to the relationship and to carrying out the duties of being a pastor. And for me, it's how I think about it when somebody isn't at church. It's like not seeing one of my kids. I mean there might be a reason you know my kids might be at school or or I'm away from the house for a meeting or something at night but I always want to see them and that's really that's really all I desire is to is to see them and to be with them in Christ and so to think about the pastor as a father is not to think about kind of a, a naked exercise of authority just to aggrandize yourself we're not lording it over as the gentiles do but we are caring for and we and we long to see our children and to be with them and to hear their joys and to share their sorrows and to walk with them on the way that leads to life everlasting.
0: Very good. You are listening to a word fitly spoken podcast. If you like what you've heard, check us out. wordfitlyspoken.org, Twitter.com at WordFitly, or Facebook.com slash WordFitly. Hey, if you don't like what you hear, let us know too. We're easy to find. If you have any questions, send them to us. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless.